So it is. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, uh, our church, as Michael said, pastored the church for 31 years. Our church was, um, was known as Maranatha Christian Fellowship. And we merged last year with another church called Destiny Church. And now our church, uh, I didn't have, I actually had very little role in renaming it, but the new name of our church, and I'll tell you where it came from, is Converge Church. We got a lot of young people in our in our body, and they really sought the Lord on this. But where it came from is Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that we are reconciled to God through the cross, but also reconciled to one another, and we become one new man. The church that we merged with, and now I am co-pastoring with their pastor, Jonathan Leith, was a, an African-American church, was a black church. I mean, we've worked really hard through the years, for a lot of years, to foster reconciliation and unity, and you know how it is today in today's culture. And really, in a divided society, only the church can model unity. And I knew Jonathan for a number of years, and uh, about two and a half years ago now, almost three years ago, he came and talked to me about the possibilities of uh, doing that. And I still remember the conversation. We went out to breakfast and he was talking about maybe joining us or us getting together and this and that. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm wide open to that, you know, whatever the will of God is. And uh, so I said to him, he said, yeah, because I always wanted to build, you know, a racially diverse and culturally diverse church and all of that. And I said, Jonathan, I said, look, I said, I'm just wondering. I said, how, how, many, how many whites do you have in your church? And he just, yeah, he did just this. <laughs> I said, oh, you mean none, right? He said, well, I have a few Hispanic. But anyhow, we've merged together, and we officially merged last September. And part of what we're believing, see, the gospel, as I said, the gospel not only reconciles us to God through Christ Jesus, but reconciles us to, to one another. And that kind of reconciliation, that kind of oneness, and that kind of unity, which is hard, it's, it's, it's not easy, uh, that kind testifies to the truth of the gospel. And part of really the impetus behind that is that we would be a witness to the truth, uh, truth of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of background. We're going to read the text, then we're going to pray, and then I'll really, um, God willing, just get to the text and unpack the message for you. A lot of you are probably familiar with Philippians. Philippians is a letter. It was penned by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi was founded by the Apostle Paul. You can read the account of it in Acts chapter 16. Uh, it was founded probably about 10 years prior to the writing of this letter. The purpose, the general purpose of Paul writing the letter was to actually thank the church for the gift that they had given him because although he was in prison and he was restrained, he still had to he still had to take care of his basic needs. The Roman government didn't meet all of his needs. So the Church of Philippi had taken a collection, and in the past they had taken collections for him. So he was writing a letter to thank them and also to encourage them that, that joy, ultimately joy, is found in Christ Jesus and not in their circumstances. If joy is going to be found in your circumstances, it's always going to be up and down and here and there. The joy, Christian joy, is not circumstantial, but it's founded and rooted in Christ. As Paul goes about and do it, doing that in four little chapters here, he also instructs them in other things in the Christian faith and tells them, and part we're going to get to in chapter 3, tells them how to grow and how to progress and how to move forward in the Christian life individually and as the church. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. This is Philippians 3. I'm actually reading from the English Standard Version this morning. 
verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All those people that he's describing there, we might put it this way. These are people that believed that it's Jesus plus. The way you get saved, the way you follow God is Jesus plus. Jesus plus keeping the law. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus certain rituals. So he says, look out for these people. He said, we are the circumcision, or he might be saying, we're, we're the real Christians who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Please remember that. As we unpack the message today, it's going to be a, an important point. Though I myself have reason for confidence, in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Surpassing worth. If you write in your Bible, that'd be good when they underline, the circle, highlight, surpassing worth. I have that highlighted in my text here. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him or being conformed unto him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection from the dead." Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because, some of your translations, modern translations, don't translate it this way. Because, I'm going to talk to you about that later on. I think the ESV gets it right here. He's saying, I press on, and the reason I press on is because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Do you mind if we uh, stand together and pray? If you would just stand, we'll, we'll pray together. Father, we come in Jesus' name. There is no other name that we can come by. We come because we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We've been forgiven. We've been made into new creatures. We come because your Holy Spirit bids us to come. And we come, Lord, in accord with your word, with boldness and with courage, Lord, in order to make our requests known to you the throne, before the throne of grace. And Lord, we're here today and we get the privilege of every week and throughout the week opening up your word and you speak to us. And sometimes, Lord, those of us that have been Christians for a while, we get a little bit dull of hearing, Lord, because we just have almost two red access to it. And Lord, I want to just, I want to ask you to forgive us for that and that you would help us this morning. Lord, that you would help us to give attention, to give focus, Lord, to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church, to this church here. I pray that you would help me because I certainly don't want to be found to just be speaking empty words. I pray, Lord, for the unction, for the anointing, for the empowerment, for the help of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that your word would go forth, that Lord, it would, it would just find a place in the hearts of the people that were here, that it would wedge into their hearts, and Lord, that it would bear fruit, and there would be, it would be uh, fruit that would be the 30, 60, and even 100-fold, Lord. And God, that you would bless and favor this people today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. All right. Uh, You know, the title of my message today is Possessing Your Tomorrows. Now, I'm, I'm not real creative with titles. In fact, I'm really, like, if you were in our church, my titles would be like, Following Jesus, Obeying the Lord. God is holy. I mean, there's a lot of pastors that are real creative with, with titles. So I thought, man, I used this title one time before years ago, and it sounds like a really cool, clever title. So I'm going to title it uh, Possessing Your Tomorrows because it'll get the people's attention, and it really represents the content that uh, I'm going to share with the people today. And then, you know what? I'm, I'm doing my stuff, and I'm putting together, and it was just day before yesterday, I guess. I'm online, and I just hit possessing your tomorrow. So you know what I discovered? That it's really not too cool, not too clever, not too unique. That there's like, I don't know how many hits, but it's like there's thousands of hits possessing your tomorrow. So anyhow, I wish I had a more original title. I thought I was being original, turned out not to be. So we're talking about possessing your tomorrows. Uh, as many of you I'm sure know, God, God is timeless. God stands outside of time, God is not confined by time. God is the creator, and he's the originator of of time, but he's not confined by time. Unlike you and I, we are really confined by time. We live life within the constraints of time, and we measure time by clocks and calendars. And with the end of 2018, and now the dawn of 2019, what the Holy Spirit does is use the calendar to get our attention and call us to a time to sort of pause, I mean, just even individually, but as a, as a church, as a manual church, to take a minute and just kind of pause and reflect and look at where you've been individually and corporately, look at where you're at, and look at where you're going. Now, I know, because I've talked to your elders, I know your elders have been just really vigilant and diligent and prayerful about attempting to hear from God. God, what do you have for Emmanuel Church in 2019 and beyond? I want to just urge all of you to be kind of poised in the same fashion to be able to hear from God and be able to trust God in whatever it is that he has. Now, I am pretty confident not because I know you, but because I, I know the Lord, that God has some good and glorious tomorrows on his agenda for you. But one of the paradoxes that is buried in the infinite wisdom of God is this. While God has these promises, while God has these good and glorious tomorrows promised for you, you will only inherit, you will only take hold of those promises to the degree you're willing to fight for them. You remember, I mean, I know this is a Christian church, so you know the story of Joshua in the promised land, right? I I always thought that was interesting. God says, uh, you know, I'm going to give you this land. In fact, God says, I'll give you the land, and it's flowing with milk and honey, and he does all that, and then he says it to Joshua, go ahead, take the land, it's all yours. But then he says, look, you got some enemies there, and you're going to have to fight. 
In other words, he gives them the land, but he says, you have a responsibility there, and you need to kind of walk in this thing that I've called you to. So there's a, there's a bit of a battle, there's a contending, there's a, uh, this reaching forward. In other words, it's not magic. You don't get to sit back and watch God work magic. Let me just sit back and just watch all these things unfold. But God, in, in all of the things he ordains, he ordains these ends, but he also ordains the means, and you're the means to accomplish his ends and his purposes and his plan um, and all of those things. So we're going to talk about that from Philippians 3 here. And if, if, you're going to take care, if you're going to take hold of those tomorrows, those promises that God has for you individually and as a church, I'll tell you what, you cannot put your confidence in the flesh. You need to have faith in God. You cannot focus or give attention to or inordinate attention to lesser things. You need to give all your attention to knowing Christ and growing in Christ. If you're going to possess those tomorrows and take hold of them, you need to be willing to let go of what's behind. And we'll talk about that. He's not talking about erasing it from your memory. He's talking about not being tethered to it anymore. And if, if you're going to take hold of your tomorrows, you got to do it together. Uh, guys that have been in men's retreat have heard me talk on this theme a little bit, but I'll tell you, the New Testament is inescapably corporate. We read texts all the time, and we, we take them for us personally, in isolation from everyone else. Some of the texts are meant to be taken that way. Almost all of them can be applied that way, but most of them, as they're written, are, are plural, and they're meant to communicate that this Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. It's a shared life, and the purposes of God are advanced in the context of community. In other words, we do it together. So coming back here, let's go back to Philippians and unpack this just a little bit. Um, in verse 2, look out for the dogs. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? He's talking about likely what were known as Judaizers, and they were those that said, look, Jesus is not enough. You know, Jesus is great, and he's got some great teachings and all, all of that, but Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus keeping the law. You need Jesus plus some additional effort. You need Jesus plus keeping some sacred days. You need Jesus plus circumcision. And you know what? There's people out there like that today. And you know what? In your own heart, and even in my own heart, we, we actually, we say, I believe in grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, but inside, we get saved, and then we try, we do everything we can. And we work so often our own strength and think that by doing what we do, we commend ourselves to God. He says, look out for that. That's a bad way to uh, uh, approach life. In fact, I was talking to somebody who's not a Christian uh, two weeks ago. I, I guess. And he was kind of talking to me about, you know, what makes Christianity special? Why is all the rest of, you know, why, aren't all the rest of the religions, it's all the same God and all that nonsense. And, and uh, I said, no. And one of the things that I, I, I talked to him about was that in every other religion that I'm aware, aware about, uh, aware of, that uh, it really, what, what's most important is what you do. What you do to commend yourself to God, what you do to appease God, what you do to put yourself in God's good graces. And I said, with Christianity, I said, God is the one through his grace who puts you in his good graces through the person of the Son who died in your place on the cross for your sins as your substitute. So it's radically different. And then he says in verse 3, he says, we're the circumcision. I'll just use a more common vernacular. He would say, well, we're, we're the real Christians. And who are the real Christians? They worship by the Spirit of God. The word translated worship there means 
uh, it means worship, but it can mean service. It's not, the, it's not the word that's used exclusively for sort of a heartfelt worship. It's sort of a service of worship or worship of service. It says, who worship by the Spirit of God. Who are the true Christians? They're the ones that are not living according to the law. They're not trying to keep a, some ritualistic list in order to get in good graces with God, but rather they're the ones that are energized and empowered and, and strengthened by the Spirit of God. And they glory in Christ Jesus. Again, in other words, we're translated glory there, it means to boast. Who are the real Christians? They're not boasting on how good they are, how strong they are, how capable they are, how, how much ability they have. You know what they're boasting in? This ought to always be our boast, shouldn't it? Their boast is in Jesus, amen? So you guys seemed a little bit, you got a little bit loud and talkative and all of that during worship, so you can feel free to do that now with me. I'm like quite comfortable with that. So you, you kind of, you know, if you like affirm something I say or uh, or whatever you want to do, I'm really comfortable with that. So anyhow, the true Christians, they're serving by the Spirit of God. They're boasting in Christ Jesus. And think about it. And they put no confidence in, in the flesh. If there's anything that's going to thwart you from getting you to where God wants to get you to is if you have a misplaced confidence in the flesh. Misplaced confidence in your own ability, your own strength, your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own gifting, your own ability. He says, you know who the real Christians are? They don't put any confidence in the flesh. And then what he does is he goes on and he gives his resume a little bit here. This is interesting. He says in the very next verse, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. In other words, if anybody would have a reason to have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. Maybe he's, listen to this resume. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, what he's saying is I'm not just ethnically Jewish, but I was raised in a Jewish culture. I was raised in Judaism. I even know because in that day, the spoken language, probably Aramaic, he says, I learned the Hebrew language. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, I did. That doesn't mean that he never sinned. He's not claiming sinless perfection, but he's saying, uh, he's saying, I kept the law, and when I missed it, I did what was necessary ritualistically to put me right. And they, so verses 4, 5, and 6, he gives his resume. He, he says, don't be confident in the flesh. But if anybody has reason to be confident, it would be me. And you know what the thing is? He presents a resume, and you know why he does, because we're going to see that in a minute. But here, I guess I'll tell you this. God, God is not impressed by the things that impress us. You know the thing to get us? Wow, man, where, where'd you go to school? Where do you work? Where do you live? What's your social status? Who do you know? Who are you connected with? What are your accomplishments? And we have resume. You know what resumes are. Everybody probably, or most of you in here have probably done a resume before. Resume is designed to reflect you in the best light possible. And a resume is designed to, you're kind of calling out to whoever that person is. Hire me. I'm the best one for the job. Well, God is not at all impressed by what impresses us. And God, I, mean, I noted this on the men's retreat, God does not choose like we choose. In other words, he's not sitting up in some council of heaven saying, let's look through all the resumes. Wow, look at this one. This is really impressive. Could be a big help to the kingdom of God. Look at this one. This is really impressive. Could be a big help to the kingdom of God. He doesn't choose the way that we choose. When I was young, I played a lot of sports. I liked playing a lot of sports. 
And one of the things I played was basketball. And we, we'd go out and we'd just play on the courts that were around, play basketball all the time, and we would choose up teams. And a lot of times, oftentimes, I was a captain. So, you know, those of you that grew up this way, you know you got to choose the players for your team. You know, one choose one, then you choose one. And what you do before the game, because some of the guys you don't know, you're watching to see how they play. And who are you choosing for your team? You're choosing for your team the ones they can play the game. And if they're big and tall and they can play the game, that's even better because look at how talented and look at how gifted they are. God does not do it our way. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, not many of you were wise, not many of you were, basically he says, not many were strong, not many of you had high social standing. He said, I've chosen the base things, the rejected things. These are all the things that I've chosen. Now, he doesn't say not any were wise, not any were base, not any. He does occasionally choose someone that has sort of this natural wisdom, natural gifting. He does do that, but he said, not many of you were. That isn't the way I choose. And he tells us why, 2 Corinthians 4, he tells us why we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the glory would be seen to be of him and not of ourselves. So Paul gives his whole resume here, and then he goes on. He said, but whatever gain I had counted, verse 7, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If Paul had sort of a obsession, that was his obsession, and it's a good one. It was knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the surpassing worth. See, this what Paul had discovered, you know the parable Jesus told uh, Matthew 13, 44, about the pearl of great price, and the guy finds it there, and it says that he sold everything, he bought the field so he could have the pearl. That doesn't mean that you can buy salvation. That doesn't mean that you can buy the kingdom of God. That just seem, simply means that it's worth everything that you've got. He said, I found that, that, that which is of, of surpassing value. And he says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. And a lot of you have been Christians for a while, so you know the word is much stronger than that. And for those of you who don't, let's see, what would be an acceptable term? Excrement. And, and you ought to know this, too. What he's not saying, he's saying don't put confidence in the flesh. He's not saying that accomplishments are bad. He's not saying that it's bad you went to a particular school. He's not saying it's bad that you may have achieved something. He's not saying any of those things are bad. What he's doing is he's making a comparative argument. He said, compared to Christ... It's worth nothing. Compared to Christ, this is nothing. Don't rely on those things. They don't get you right with Jesus, and they don't commend you, and they don't sustain you, and they won't keep you, and they're not going to help you get to where you want to get to. You can get all the high... You know what? If you were able to go out and you were able to fill this church with all the most high-credentialed people that you could think of, that's not going to advance the purpose of God. What's going to advance the purpose of God is a church that's filled with humble people that says, not me, but Christ, and he gives grace to the humble, he opposes the proud, and they have the people that say, God, whatever you want, however you want to do it, however you want to use me, I'm not here for position, I'm not here for some kind of promotion, I'm not here for any of those things, I want to serve your purpose. People in a church like that, God's going to just simply invade that by his spirit. I mean, Paul was ignited. His passion was ignited because he had tasted of the grace of God and God had filled him and moved in his life. He said, for your sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and righteousness from God that depends on faith. It would be so remiss of me if I were to just go by this and talk very, very lightly about this. Paul talks about a righteousness that comes from Christ and comes to us through faith. See, we're talking about possessing our tomorrows. You can't be, you can't put any reliance upon the flesh. You got to have faith in Jesus Christ. You got to have faith in order to get right with the Lord. You got to have faith in order to move forward in the Lord. But he touches right here on the most critical problem that all of us have. Here's the fact that we're not righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Want me to tell you a little secret that Christians don't like to talk about uh, because they just have this kind of funny view of, of God's love and acceptance? God loves everyone, but he doesn't accept everyone. He only accepts you on the basis of righteousness and you're not righteous. That, that's the scripture. There's none righteous, no, not one. And if you're looking at me with these kind of like confused faces, think about it, work through the text. You're accepted into the family of God on the basis of righteousness and you're not righteous and you can't get yourself righteous. You can't make yourself righteous. There's no way that you can do it. And, and that's your problem and that's a big problem and that's my problem and that's a big problem and that's humanity's problem and that's a big problem. And then God actually has a little problem that he created for himself because God determined that he was going to save unrighteous sinners. But how, we, how, how was he going to do that? How can he invite unrighteous people into his family? Well, he couldn't do that unless they became righteous. So that's where we come. You can read Romans 3, 21 through 26. That's where we have the cross that God condescended, took on humanity, frail humanity. He breathed the same air you breathed. He walked like you walked. He endured what you endured. And then he hung on the cross as your substitute, and he bore the penalty for your sins. And the scripture says this, see, this, 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 this solves our fundamental problem, and you got to have this. And the Bible says that when you place faith in Christ, and get this too, the Bible says that you've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Well, being saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Even your ability to, how about this? You want to rejoice in the Lord? Now, somewhere along the line, you believe faith is something you do, but even your ability to believe came from God. And then the scripture says that you're made righteous. Now, this is it. See, sometimes we just mess this up. That's called justification. Sometimes we just mess this up because uh, I've used it, you've used it, nothing wrong with it. We say, well, just as if you've never sinned. Well, how about this? Because I like this better. I just, I just came across this the other day. I actually shared it with some of our kids in children's ministry. How, how about this? When you place faith in Christ, his sins are, or your sins are credited to his account. His righteousness is credited to your account. Now, when you think of his righteousness, see, Jesus was righteous by, by nature and character. That's who he was. And Jesus was also righteous in practice. In, every, in other words, he always did everything right. Always, he never broke the rules, always did everything right, perfectly obeyed the Father. That perfect obedience, that righteousness that was demonstrated under observation, that's all credited to you. So how about justification this way? How about justification being like, just as if you've always obeyed? His perfect obedience is credited to you, and now you're right with God. I know a number of years ago, I told the men a story 
of uh, my daughter when she was young. She was five and my one son, Jeremy, was three. And we were, we were on the side of the house and Jeremy was walking and he, he stumbled and, and fell. And it looked like my daughter, Kelly, like stepped on him, boom, on the back of him. And he hit his face on the ground. He got up and his lip was bleeding. He was crying. And I was angry and I said to Kel, I said, you know, what, what did you do? We're going to talk about this when we get inside. So I got inside. I gave Jeremy to my wife to take care of his lip. I sat her on the couch. She's only five years old. I mean, what is going on here? And I said, Kel, I said, what happened there? And she said to me, she said, I stepped on him. <laughs> you believe it? I stepped on him. My daughter's still the same way now. She's almost 28. She'll just tell you. I said, that's what I thought you did. And I said, what do you think that deserves? A spanking. That's what she did. I said, you're right, okay? We, that's what we did with our kids when they were little. We, we spanked them. I said, okay, and we had the thing that we were going to, uh, you know, we had our thing that we, you know, did the deal with. So that's what you're getting. You're getting a spanking. And then I had a brainstorm. I had a brainstorm right in that minute. You ever get those? I mean, I don't get them that often. It's like a God moment. And it just came to me, I said, you know, I have, a, I have a good chance to teach Kelly something that she'll hopefully never forget. And what I decided to teach her is I want to teach her something about the great exchange, the way that Christ took her punishment. And uh, so I went in and I talked to my wife. And again, I, I, you know, my wife always thinks that I embellish this story, but I really don't. She just remembers it a little bit differently than me. But um, when I went to her, I said, look, this is what happened. Kelly did this. And uh, I told her she's going to get a spanking. But here's what's going to happen. I said, you're going to spank me. I'm going to take her place. I'm going to make sure she knows it. And see, my, my wife, she didn't look like she did today. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. She, she looked like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so anyhow, I went, out and I went out in the room, in the living room, and I said, Kelly, here's what's going to happen. You deserve to be punished. That's exactly what you deserve. But I love you, and I'm going to take your punishment for you. So I kind of stretched myself out and... Uh, and my wife with a little bit more, she's small, but she with a little more energy than needed to be, but I guess she wanted to just make sure it looked realistic. She whacked me a couple times. And my son, who was about six or seven at the time, David, he came out into the room and his eyes are this wide. Can't believe it. Dad's getting spanked. What did he do? And then I told Kelly, I explained it to her. You know, this really can't, I mean, this is just a minuscule reflection or analogy. I said, you know what? Jesus took your punishment on the cross. He died for you. I took your spanking. He, he died for you in your place. That's, that's, this is ju- justification. He took your sins and he gives you his righteousness. And then the text goes on as we uh, unpack it. So if you're tracking with me or if you're taking notes, you're saying, okay, well, how do we, how do we move forward to possess our tomorrows? Well, one thing we don't do is we don't put confidence in the flesh. One thing we do do is we put faith in Christ. It's faith that justifies us, but it's faith that we live by. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 10. He talks about the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says this, that I may know him. Or, or even, uh, I didn't look, really in the Greek text here, but I think this is a, a purpose clause. In order that, you know, this righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith, that's in order that I may know him 
that I might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, being com- becoming like him and being conformed unto his death. He said, this is it. You want to move forward? You have to have Christ as your priority. You want to move forward? Then Christ needs to be your grand obsession. You, need to move for- you want to move forward? Then there needs to be single-minded devotion to Jesus, to knowing him and growing in him and becoming more like him. Paul says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. You know, the Bible says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal bodies. Can you believe that? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. God lives in you. Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Bible says that in the beginning, Jesus, all things were created by him, for him, through him. All things hold together in him. The one who did all those things and all the creative power of the universe and holds everything together, guess what? No lie. He lives in you. Well, I want to know him in, in that resurrection power. You know, what a want to be there. And then it says this, and this is sort of like one of the things in Christian circles you just don't talk about too much. But it says, in the fellowship of his sufferings. Wow. Remember, I guess it was John. I might have been, I guess it was Peter and John. When they were, they were arrested by the Sanhedrin and they were, you know, whipped and all that kind of stuff. And they left joyfully because they had been counted worthy to suffer for his sake. And, you know, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 2, uh, I guess around 2021, 20, something like that, that Jesus gave us an example of how to suffer. See, when you say you want to know God, you can't be selective. When you want to say you want to know Christ, well, I like this power of resurrection stuff. You know, I've been with people, and boy, maybe, maybe some of you have been there. They kind of slice up the Bible with what they like and what they don't like. Uh, this, what we, we have called for many years cafeteria-style Christianity. Well, I like this stuff. I remember talking to a, a, a young couple that was living together. And so I'm talking to them. I'm talking about what God says. I'm talking about God's way. I'm talking about God's better way. And I'm talking to them about their need to, you know, separate. And this guy, I'll never forget it. He says to me, well, I don't think that applies to me. <laughs> well, how, how do you determine that? Where did that, you don't get to slice the Bible up that way and say, well, I like this, I don't like, I like resurrection power, you can keep the suffering. Then it says being conformed to his death. This is an interesting one, being conformed to his death. And I'll tell you why. A lot of you probably familiar, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Well, a lot of people don't like grammar, but the grammar in this, I've been crucified with Christ, it's actually a perfect tense verb, which means it's something that took place in, in the past and continues to have effect through the present. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's also what's called a passive voice, which means it was done to me. This has to do with union with Christ. It says this, that I've been joined with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So we have that. If you've responded to Christ as Savior and Lord, been born again by the Spirit of God, you've been joined to him, and you've been crucified with Christ. They, nevertheless, you live. Well, when it says here being conformed to his death, interesting, it's actually what's called a participle, which is a, a verbal adjective. So it's got verbal force here. This is a present tense, which means this is something you're doing every day, which means every day with God's help under the lordship of Christ, what you're doing is you are dying to self and living to Christ. 
So then in practice every day, you begin to live what's true in principle. So the scriptures, oh, you're moving forward. What are you doing? This is Christ is your grand obsession, knowing him. And then he says this, verse 12. He said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Perfect can be translated mature, fully mature, really. Uh, He's saying, look, I haven't arrived. He says, I don't want you to think that I'm some elite Christian that's arrived. I haven't arrived. He said, but I press on to make it my own. Now, this is where I wanted to get to you. Uh, My translation, English Standard Version, says I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. A number of modern translations, I looked at the New American Standard and I looked at the NIV, say something like this. I press on to make it my own, uh, that which God has kind of possessed me for, something like that. What it does is it makes some kind of goal sort of uh, out here as the moving force for what's moving me to you know, go forward. Here's what Paul says. Let me just make it simple for you. Look, he says, I haven't already obtained it or already been made perfect, but I press on. And the reason I press on, and I do think the ESV gets it right. Paul translates this phrase exactly the same way in Romans uh, 5, 12. He says, the reason I'm pressing on, and get this, the reason I'm pressing on isn't because I'm stronger than all the rest of you. The reason I'm pressing on isn't because I'm smarter than all the rest of you. The reason I'm pressing on isn't because I have better education than all the rest of you. The reason that I am pressing on is because God has saved me. It says, the reason I'm pressing on is because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Guess Guess who's the one that initiated the relationship with God in your life? It was him. That was another thing I was talking to the guy that I was witnessing to. I said, you know what? Here's what you got to see. I said, all these other religions are some kind of pursuit of God. I said, God is after you. I actually, at the end, you know, I went through all my stuff, what was called a defense of the faith, because he had all these questions. And then when I was done, I thought, you know what? I missed one of the most important things. I, 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 I missed the fact that telling that God loved him. And I told him, I said, God loves you and God is after you and God is pursuing you. I said, that's one of the differences of Christianity. God pursues. Paul says, here's the whole reason. You want to know? You want to know what it is? It's because God took hold of me. God took the initiative. When you get to heaven, I tell our church all the time, I said, when you get to heaven, I said, you're you're not going to be saying, wow, you know, I'm glad glad I was smarter. I'm glad I was wiser. I'm glad I was more intelligent. I'm, I'm glad I had it better together. I'm glad I was able to figure out the message better. No, when you get to heaven, you're going to be saying, I am so glad God saved me. We take no credit. Amen. Yeah, you know what? We clap in our church too. So if you find an appropriate clapping moment, feel free to do that. And that actually was one. That was one. You missed about six other ones. <laughs> but but we're, we're getting close here. And he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. A lot of you are probably familiar. These are athletic metaphors. Uh, I mean, it shows real energy. The idea of not um, forgetting what lies behind. It's a runner. You don't want to be looking over your shoulder. It's going to slow you down. You're going to stretch forward with all the energy that you have. Uh, to, to, to the finish line. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to possess your tomorrows, and this is hard for a lot of us, you're going to have to forget what lies behind. You're going to have to forget the bad, and you're going to have to forget the good, too. Now, forgetting doesn't mean you erase it from your memory. 
You know, in fact, you can read throughout the scripture, there's many times that we're told to remember. I mean, Jesus, uh, I think it's in Luke 17, says, remember Lot's wife. I know Psalm 103 too, it says, forget none of his benefits. There's great value sometimes in even actually remembering the bad. You know why? If you remember the bad, it can help you, first of all, to appreciate or magnify the grace of God in your life. Now, when you remember where you came from, when you remember where you were at, when you remember where you were heading, I mean, if you never forget that, you will always magnify the grace of God in the present and the future. And of course, if you remember where you came from and you remember what you were doing and you remember all those kinds of things, there can be a hedge against doing the same thing in the future. I was with someone very close to me recently it was going through the throes of withdrawal from a drug addiction. And uh, I tried really hard. You know, we, we, we were sitting and we were talking. I said, I said, you see what you're going through now? I said, never, never, ever, ever, ever forget this. Of course, as a, a, a typical addict struggling in recovery and got through it, forgot about it, and relapsed and had the same thing happen again. But you don't forget the bad because it becomes a hedge against doing it in the future and because it magnifies the grace of God. Um, and you know what? The idea of forgetting, I mean, even, I mean, the brain's a marvelous instrument, I mean, God's given us. The human mind, I mean, I've read that every experience, every thought, everything, every person you've ever known, been with, encountered, talked to, etc., every single one of those things is actually embedded in your brain. You might not be able to bring it to conscious recall, but it is there forever and ever. It's there. So he's not talking about erasing it from memory. And how do we know that even from the immediate context? Because Paul just went through a litany of his past. And then he says, forgetting what lies behind. He's saying, look, don't, don't, be, don't be tethered to it. Don't be like, you ever see a dog, you know, that's, you know, chained up, can only get this far? You know, he can run maybe 10 feet, 15 feet, and it just grabs, grabs a hold of him. And that's it. That's as far as he can go. He said, don't be like that because there can be people, there are people, there are things that have happened to some of you in the past. There are ways in which you have been sinned against. There's people in in their grave right now that have sinned against you and they still have some control over you. Wow. He says, don't do that. By the grace of God, let that kind of control be broken. Don't be tethered to your past that way. And don't be tethered to some kind of past sin. Because even Christians, you know what we do? We, 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 we receive the grace of God and we receive forgiveness. And then we continue to feel guilty for things that we did. And here's the thing too. And I understand what people are talking about. They'll say, well, you need to forgive yourself. Well, here's what I want to say to you. Okay. I understand the terminology. It's fine. You want to use it. I want to use it and all that. The Bible never tells you to forgive yourself. What the Bible says is that God forgives you. And what the Bible says is that you forgive other people. What you need to do to get rid of the, the nonsense guilt that you're carrying from the past is just agree with what God has already said to be true. Because otherwise, you're disagreeing with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the righteous judge that knows everything. And saying, well, God, I don't really agree with your judgment. You got to agree with his judgment. And you know what? You also, you can be tethered to the good stuff in the past and it can keep you, there's a lot of good things. And the Bible tells us we can recall good things because it becomes an impetus to our faith in the present. But the problem with the good is it, it, it the good from the past is it, 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 it sometimes taints our ability to see what God's doing in the present. 
All the way back in the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 3, they're rebuilding the temple. You know the story of the temple? It got destroyed. They lay the foundation. They have a big celebration, but the celebration is mixed because there's a bunch of people that are rejoicing and there's a bunch of people that are crying. And all the people that are crying are saying, we remember how the temple used to be. This is never going to be the same. Well, guess what? What God was doing then is what God was doing then, and he intended for you to rejoice. I mean, you can't. I like to... um, I, I, like to, I like to weight lift still at age 60. And you know what can really mess me up? Is if I think back in the past, when I was 20 or 25 or I was 30 or even when I was 40, and, and I, I think back of what kind of weights I was lifting then versus what I'm lifting now. So I gotta let that go. Wow, that was great history. Well, let me just rejoice in what's going on now. It says you gotta forget what's, what's behind. And then just, and we're just coming to a close right now, so just hang with me. He goes on in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And we read through the the entirety of Philippians. And what we are able to conclude is this. Uh, I said to you in introduction somewhere along the way that Christian life is inescapably corporate. Look, if you're going forward, don't put any confidence in the flesh. Put your faith in Christ. Make him the sole object of your affection. Forget what lies behind. And guess what? You're moving forward as a church, Emmanuel Church. You've got to do it together. Um, I guess it was Larry said, you know what? They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to apostolic teaching. They were devoted to prayer. You share together in prayer. You share together in life together. You do, uh, Philippians 5, 1 says they partnered or koinonia. They fellowship together in the advancement of the gospel. You do it together. You work together. You have one another's backs. You don't get it perfect. There's always, you know what? You, you, in our membership class for our church, I frequently will tell people, you know what? You're going to be in the church and here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to offend people. People are going to offend you, and even me. Like, I'm a nice guy. I tell them, I said, somewhere along the line, me, I'm going to offend you. I said, we don't escape offense in the body of Christ. What we do is we learn to deal with it, and we forgive, and we overlook, and we forbear, and we move forward, because we're not like the world. God has redeemed us, and we're an example and reflect the unity that's in Christ Jesus. So, and, and, and here's probably the most important thing I can tell you, all right? And, and you, know, you know how preachers are. They're always there. They come to like 18 different conclusions. But this is, this is real. You know. <laughs> yeah, whenever, you know, whenever, whenever, whenever a pastor says, and in conclusion, you're like, yeah, right. But this, this is almost it. You know, Philippians 1, 6. It says, this is it's inescapably corporate. It says, you began a good work in you. Do you know that you is not a singular you? That's a plural you. So he, he's writing the church of Philippi. He who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in all you guys. He who began a good work in Emmanuel Church. He's going to see it through to completion. You know who, you know who, you know who your t- tomorrows are ultimately dependent on? Ultimately dependent on Christ, who's the great promise keeper. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, I've said it in a lot of different settings, and I'm going to say it again. You know what? You will make it through, and you will, you will get to where God wants to get you to because his reputation is at stake. They said, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to bring you there. If you ever read in the Old Testament, which I'm sure many of you have, when God gets frustrated with the people of, of Israel, and he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy them all, and there's a lot of dynamics going on there, then Moses, as an intercessor, as a type of Christ, makes an appeal to God as to why he shouldn't do that. And what does he do when he appeals to God? He says, God, what are all the rest of the nations going to think of you? You said you're going to bring them, and now you're going to destroy them. They're going to think you can't do it. 
So I'll tell you what, you, you know what's the guarantee of your success? God's commitment to his own glory. God's commitment to his own integrity. God's commitment to his own self. So uh, Isaiah 40, and this is the text, and I, I asked your worship leader to, uh, we're going we're gonna to close in a song. This is Isaiah 40, you all know it. God goes through this whole he talks about how he's the creator, how nobody compares to him. There's nobody who can liken him to. He stretches out the heavens, he forms the earth. And it says in verse 24 of Isaiah, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root. Then he blows on them, this is God, and they wither. It says, whom then will you compare me? To whom will you compare me? That I should be like him. In other words, God's saying there's nobody like me. Where am I trying to get you to? Listen, your future depends on God. Seek God. Love God. Serve God. Do it together. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He wants you to look at the heavens. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the stars. You know, I read a thing the other day. He said there's about 10 trillion galaxies. And you know how many stars there are in the galaxies? There's an estimated septillion stars. You say to me, what's a septillion? I don't have a clue. You know what? I'm, I'm relatively well educated. I never heard of a septillion before. They says a one followed by 24 zeros. Well, God says, you see all this stuff? He said, I did all this stuff. And you see that septillion stars? You can't see them, obviously. I know every one of them. And I know them all by name. I named them. I got four kids. I can't keep their names straight. He's got a septillion stars. Oh, yeah, this one, yeah. Yeah, we'll flame this one out in a little while. Yeah, that was whatever. You know, that was Jeremy, or that was whatever they call stars. And he, he says he brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. Because he's strong in power, not one is missing, nothing fails. Then he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God? You know what he's saying? He's saying, how come some of you, how come some of you, some of God's people, are saying, God, where are you? God, why does stuff happen? God, why do we find ourselves here? God, why do we have to have so much hurt? God, why do we have so, so much... God, where are you? It doesn't seem like you're around. And that's what was happening there. God's people were asking those questions. And, God, where are you? It seems like my way is hidden from the Lord. And then God says, this is God. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's not tired. He's not worn out. He's not ignoring you. He's not distant from you. He gives power to the faint. If you're feeling faint this morning, guess what? We all ought to say, yeah, I'm feeling faint. Well, none of us are where we need to be. It says he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, what does he do? He increases strength. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're going to move forward, and if you do, and if you make your, your focus Christ, and you depend upon his grace, and you move in faith, I'll tell you what's going to happen. He's going to increase your strength. It says even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Look, wait on the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Pray. I know you're going to be praying and seeking the Lord. They'll renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagle. They'll run, not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Um, your, your worship leader is going to lead us in an old song. Um, it's called, I think it's called Knowing You. It was an old Graham Kendrick song, 1994. Nothing like knowing you. And what I'd like us to do, and the elders gave me a little liberty, is we could sing this song together. And then what we do in our church, if you wouldn't mind, 
I know you're all in pews here. If you wouldn't mind breaking in the groups of just four, four, five, six, joining hands and praying together for one another and praying together for your for church and believing God for 2019 and the year beyond. Is that okay? That good? So what we're going to do is we're going to sing this song together, standing. That's my signal for stand up. And I think you'll remember it as we go, go through it. And then if we could just break and pray, and we'll kind of close the service that way, unless one of the elders wants to pray beyond that. All I want, hell dear, built my life upon all this world reveres and wars to own all i once thought gain i have counted loss spent and worthless now compared to this knowing you You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you, and known as yours. To possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Oh, to know the power of your risen life, and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you.
of you.